0: Piers Morgan called Rebecca Fenton either a wrongfully convicted woman or the best liar he has ever met. This case flew under the radar for years until it was featured on the show Killer Women, and it has divided audiences ever since. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Hello and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back if you've listened before. I appreciate everyone, whether you pop in for one episode here and there or those who listen as soon as I upload. I am grateful for all of you for spending some time with me. For those who can't get enough Crime Lines in this weekly format, I do shorter form video content over on YouTube. I recommend checking it out. I currently do two videos a week, one pre-recorded, and one that is usually a live stream. I also have a Patreon, where I release monthly bonus episodes. You get all the regular episodes ad-free. And I even upload the audio-only version of the YouTube videos on Patreon for those who prefer listening over watching. Basically, if content is what you want, I have content. But let's get into today's episode. It was recommended by Susie. And it's a case where I wasn't sure there was going to be enough information on it. We've talked about this before. I need a certain amount for a full-length episode, a certain amount for a video, a certain amount for Patreon, and I wasn't sure really where this was going to fall. But then I really looked into it and I saw that regardless of the length of this episode, there was some information in here that I did want to talk about that's important enough to make sure it goes on my biggest platform which is this podcast. The case of Larry and Rebecca Fenton was the first episode of season two of Killer Women with Pierce Morgan. I know Pierce Morgan is a controversial figure for many, 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 many reasons. I don't know how he rehabilitated his reputation after the Daily Mirror phone hacking scandal, but people keep giving him jobs, so apparently he did. Regardless of any questions we may be holding, over Pierce Morgan's integrity, the real question we are tackling today is one of a woman who may be wrongfully convicted. Pierce only plays into this because he featured the case on his show and got it in front of a larger audience. So this case starts with a whirlwind romance. Larry Fenton was in his mid-50s when he met the not-quite-40-year-old Rebecca Thudin. The two met at the gym. Larry had grown up in New Jersey. He then moved to Atlanta before he settled in Clearwater, Florida. He worked as a pharmaceutical rep and also for a medical technology company. Rebecca was also a transplant to Florida. She had grown up in Arizona, but as a young adult, she decided she wanted to try new things to spread her wings, and she relocated. At the time she met Larry, she was working as a nurse's aide, but she had spent several years traveling prior to that. Rebecca had seen Larry before at the gym. She noticed him, but he was just one of the good-looking guys who she happened to see at the gym. It wasn't until one day when they both approached the same piece of equipment at the same time that they began talking and when they started talking, Larry asked her out. Rebecca said it was pretty much love from the start. Within three months, Larry proposed, and within a year, they married. A few months after their Florida wedding, they flew out to Southern Nevada to do a second ceremony out there for all of Rebecca's family to attend. Everyone said they were just beaming. They looked so happy. Because of Larry's income, his salary at work, they were able to buy a large house in a very nice neighborhood and Rebecca didn't have to work anymore. Larry enjoyed spoiling Rebecca with nice things and she rarely had to ask for anything because he would just give it to her. He bought her things she would never have even thought to ask for. Rebecca mostly just focused on fitness and being a housewife. After a little while, Larry suggested that they move Rebecca's birth mother into the home, something Rebecca was excited about. They had only reconnected for probably seven or eight years at this point. So let me give you a little background on Rebecca to explain this. When she was born in 1967, her mother, Karen, was pretty young and already an alcoholic. According to Rebecca, Karen was also using heroin during the pregnancy, but Karen said that the drugs came after. One day, when Rebecca was almost two years old, she got injured, and Karen took her to the hospital. Someone must have noticed something was just not right, and Child Protective Services became involved, and Rebecca never went home again. She was placed in foster care, and Karen's rights were terminated There are some differing stories on whether the termination was voluntary or not. Rebecca was then adopted by Patsy and Howard Thuden, who adored her, and then her younger siblings, who came along. This was a very tight-knit family. Both parents worked hard to provide a very nice and stable life for them. It was a really good childhood for Rebecca, and she was able to overcome as much as any child can, the trauma of an early separation from her mother. As Rebecca grew up, thoughts of her birth parents came and went, but she was busy and fulfilled and it was really not something she seriously considered looking into. She didn't really think about finding them. Then when she was 30, Karen found her and called her up. For Rebecca, it was out of the blue, but Karen thought Rebecca might need to know some family history, particularly medical history, that had come up in the years since her adoption. For instance, her birth father was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and Karen had learned there can be a genetic component to it, so she thought Rebecca needed to know. And I'm sure there was part of her who just wanted to reconnect with the little girl she had lost custody of. Rebecca decided to go ahead and meet Karen, and they actually hit it off. I know that experiences can vary greatly, but in this case, they really got along well and built a relationship, and Rebecca even got to know her younger sister. And Rebecca's birth family were just as impressed with the life she led as her adoptive family was, She seemed glamorous and well-to-do. She told everyone she was an interior designer with high-profile clients. That was the career that allowed her to travel so much, which was really one of her passions. Neither family would learn the truth until much later, but this job description was a cover. Rebecca was actually an escort. That's why she had so much money. That's why she traveled so much and seemed to have a glamorous life. She didn't want her family to know, and by the time she met Larry, she was already out of that life, and she was working in a different field. Rebecca said that Larry knew from the beginning. She wanted to be upfront with him that she had a past in sex work, and it just didn't really bother him. When Karen moved in with Rebecca, it was a big change for both of them. Karen had never lived in a situation where money just wasn't a concern. She didn't have to worry about making ends meet. And now Rebecca had someone to help her fill up her time. Because it's not like Larry was just gone at a nine to five. He traveled for work, and so Rebecca had pretty long days at home to fill. At first, the two got to know each other. They went out to lunch, and they went out shopping. But there's only so much time that can fill. So they soon began having a glass or two of wine together in the afternoons. And then it became more and more and more. And over time, there were soon days that they lost to just sitting around and drinking. Rebecca was realizing that she had lost control of her drinking. But doing something about it is another step. The first step is accepting you have a problem, and then there's a bunch more steps after that. One day, Larry came home from a business trip to find the house a mess and Rebecca and Karen were both intoxicated and that sparked an argument. Rebecca told Larry she thought she was an alcoholic. She had a problem. Karen moved out of the house and Rebecca went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And Rebecca tackled the 12 steps with everything she had. The people who know... Rebecca, have said she never did anything by half measures, and her sobriety was no different. She took it seriously, and in sobriety, she became even more focused on overall health and fitness. Rebecca and Larry had put together a small home gym in their detached garage, so Rebecca could work out whenever she wanted. And that's where Rebecca was heading on February 3rd, 2008, out to the garage gym. It was Super Bowl Sunday, so she and Larry planned to order a pizza and then watch the game. When she headed out to the garage around 2 or 3 in the afternoon, Larry was watching Tiger Woods and said he would probably doze off before the game. Rebecca's workouts were often long. Like, when I say she was into fitness, she was really into fitness. So she was out there for around two hours when she heard what sounded like someone dropping something off the roof. It landed with a thud on the ground. She did have her workout music on pretty loud, so she wasn't entirely sure what she heard. Rebecca said she stayed out there just a little longer before she headed inside sometime between 4.30 and 5, and she wondered what that noise was. When she walked inside the house, Rebecca said she found Larry on the floor in a pool of blood. He was near the bottom of the stairs by the front door. Rebecca said she wasn't sure what she was seeing in that moment. She knew Larry was hurt, obviously, since there was blood everywhere, but she first thought maybe he had fallen down the stairs. She tried to take his pulse, but she couldn't find it. However, Larry's eyes were open, so she thought that he might still be alive, and she told him to hold on. Rebecca noticed that the living room was a mess, and so she ran upstairs. She said to see what was going on. Upstairs, she found the place ransacked. Rebecca ran back downstairs. She tried to take Larry's pulse again, but couldn't find it. So then she ran outside while calling 911. The call was logged around 4.55 p.m. On the phone with the dispatcher, Rebecca said she tried but couldn't find Larry's pulse. She told the dispatcher that she wasn't sure if he was stabbed, if he was shot, what happened. She was sobbing on the call, saying how much she loved him and he loved her and she couldn't live without him. First responders arrived quickly, but it was already too late. Larry had been shot five times at close range in the back, the arm, and the neck. Due to the shots being in his back and the proximity to the front door, it is believed he was fleeing from the shooter and trying to escape when he was gunned down. With all the mess in the home, this looked like a home invasion robbery gone wrong but there were a few things right off the bat that made police wonder if the scene was staged. For one, very little was taken. A few items and Larry's Jeep were the only things gone. Yet the ransacking was in multiple rooms on both floors of the house. And some of the mess seemed pointless, like knocking things off tables or pulling drawers out without even emptying them or rifling through them. Another issue with the scene was the day and time of the crime. It wasn't dark out, so any of the neighbors could have seen someone come and go from the house. There were supposedly two cars parked in the driveway at the time of the murder, Larry's and Rebecca's, and it was Super Bowl Sunday, a time when a lot of Americans are home and watching TV. Every indication was that Homeowners were in the home. So, why would someone go in to steal a few small items and knock things off the shelves when they knew Larry was in there? It looked like the reason to go in there was to kill Larry and that the theft was an afterthought. This theory was solidified when Larry's Jeep was found a block or two from the house. Inside the Jeep, the stolen Jeep, were all of the other things taken from the home. A laptop, some inexpensive jewelry, a jar of coins, and an iPod. There were no signs the car had been broken into or hotwired, so the killer had to have taken a key from the house to steal the Jeep. So I know no one listening right now is a criminal. I'll be your character witness at trial and testify to that. But let's stretch ourselves and imagine we just committed A home invasion. We stole some items, including a car. We made a clean getaway. No one saw us. No one was around. Why would we park the car a block or two away and walk away without so much as a dime for all that trouble? It doesn't make sense, unless the purpose of the home invasion was not to steal anything. The only witnesses to any of this were two neighbors across the street who heard what they thought was gunfire coming from Larry and Rebecca's house. One of them was already outside smoking when he heard the noise. Both of them looked over at the house, but they didn't see anything. They didn't see anyone run from the house. They didn't hear anyone peel out riding in the Jeep. In fact, they told the police the Jeep wasn't even there At the time of the shooting, it was already gone. And the jeep being gone before the shooting finalized the conclusion that this theft was staged. So this shifted from a bungled burglary to a targeted murder pretty early on. And Rebecca was someone the police really wanted to interview. That night, she gave a statement to the police at the station. Rebecca told the detectives that she and Larry had a great marriage. There was no infidelity on either side. She also went over the story we already covered about how she found Larry. They asked her if she had found a pulse when she checked, and she said she didn't, but she wasn't sure she did it right. Rebecca said she didn't check him for specific injuries, but she did touch his hand to comfort him. So Rebecca is telling them that she touched Larry three times, once for comfort, twice to check his pulse. Except she had no blood on her. There was blood everywhere else. She managed to get close enough to him to touch him without getting any blood on her shoes, and then she touched his bloody body, avoiding any area that had blood on it. Rebecca said, yes, that's exactly what happened on purpose. When she saw the place ransacked, she realized it was a crime, not an accident. And she knew not to disturb anything. So she was careful when she touched Larry to leave everything exactly as it was. While it was possible for this to have happened, for her to have touched Larry without getting blood on her, it still seemed unlikely to the investigators that she didn't even get a little bit, on the tip of her shoe. Absolutely no blood on her. So they go ahead and they tested her for gunshot residue, and that test, negative. You can wash GSR off your hands, and Rebecca was wearing just a sports bra that she was exercising in, so it's not like there was a cuff of a sleeve they could test. But they did test her and her clothing and found absolutely no gunshot residue. It doesn't necessarily exonerate her, but it was enough for them to release her that night after the interview. But they still suspected Rebecca. Her story just didn't make sense to them. She saw Larry at the bottom of the stairs and the house ransacked. So what did she do? She went upstairs? How did she know that there was no intruder up there? It would have made a lot more sense if she said she just ran out of the house to call 911. But the real clencher came the day after the murder when the police searched Rebecca's car. It was still parked at the house, which was where it was when the murder occurred. Under the passenger seat, they found a plastic bag, and inside the bag was a 38 caliber revolver, Larry's watch, a set of keys to his Jeep, and a gun case. The gun had five spent casings, the exact number of bullets fired at the crime scene. Ballistics would match the gun to the bullets that killed Larry. And this weapon actually belonged to Larry. He bought it just months before the shooting. According to Rebecca, they kept it in their bedroom. So now, to buy the intruder theory, you have to believe that the robber went into the house, made it up the stairs without disturbing Larry, He would have been pretty lucky that Larry just so happened to be napping on the couch, so that's pretty great timing. While upstairs, the intruder went through the drawers and found the gun. So then he takes the gun, he goes back downstairs with a few random items in his pocket and shot Larry. Then he went through the main floor and took off in the Jeep with the neighbors across the street who were actually looking at the house, seeing absolutely nothing. The killer drove off and abandoned the jeep a block or two away. Then he double-backed, went back to the house, opened Rebecca's car door, and stashed the bag with the gun and the jeep keys under the passenger seat. And then he got away. If Rebecca was innocent, this was both a targeted murder and a very deliberate frame job implicating her in the crime. That seems pretty far-fetched, but when Rebecca was confronted with the items in her car, she acted genuinely shocked they were there. She didn't show the slightest crack in her story. She didn't get combative or shifty. She came across as sincerely confused about how those things got into her car. Now, I really don't know why she wasn't arrested at this point, because we've definitely seen cases go to trial with less. But I honestly think it was probably because she was so believable. Not that the investigators believed her, but rather that the DA could see how a jury might. Rebecca did take and pass three polygraphs. They're not admissible in court for good reason, but we know they can guide investigations. Those who believe she's guilty, and Pierce Morgan is one of them, say that she is the best liar they've ever encountered. People who talk to her who believe she is guilty based on this evidence, after talking to her, start questioning that. She even managed to pass three polygraphs. The alternative theory here is, of course, that Rebecca wasn't lying. As improbable as the sequence of events seem, maybe she was telling the truth and had been set up to take the fall. There was an issue trying to find out why anyone, Rebecca or someone else, would want Larry dead. He didn't have any known enemies and he was a pretty quiet guy who went to work and he went home and he went to work again the investigators did look into a financial motive on Rebecca's part. She was going to collect a $1 million life insurance policy. That's in addition to whatever she would inherit from bank accounts, investments, and just the house. When Rebecca was asked about life insurance in her initial police interview, she did say she was aware there was a policy, but she didn't know how much it was for. She assumed it would be her that collected as the wife but she didn't really seem to know much about it. More digging eventually would uncover that they had a prenup. It was an airtight agreement that would have protected the bulk of Larry's wealth. Rebecca would have been given a set amount for two years, after which she would be cut off. So there was a financial motive here if Rebecca wanted out of the marriage. Rebecca had more to gain financially over her lifetime if she stayed married to Larry, since he was bringing in such a large salary. Rebecca would need to want the money and not want Larry, but the police could find no one on Larry's side who heard anything about trouble in the marriage. After the rocky spot over Rebecca's drinking, things were back on track. As for Rebecca's side, her birth mother, Karen, did tell the authorities that Rebecca had a crush on a man she met in AA, someone named David. It was not a physical affair. Not even sure we could classify this as an emotional affair. But Rebecca admitted she was getting a little bored and restless being a housewife, and she developed a little crush on David. That's all it was, and that's all Karen told the police it was. After Larry's death, Rebecca did call and text David a lot, a lot, a lot, hundreds of times, but Rebecca said that even then, it was just friendship, and David eventually had to put up some boundaries because she was overwhelming him with her neediness. If they were having some love affair and she killed Larry to be with David, there really wasn't any evidence of that, and it certainly didn't work out that way. The police were hoping to find something a little more concrete than a crush to figure out why Rebecca would want out of the marriage, but they couldn't find it. There were no affairs, no blow-up fights, no abuse, nothing. They also couldn't find forensics linking her to the murder weapon. It was found in her car, but her DNA and fingerprints were not on it. No one's were. It had been wiped clean. On the other hand, there were footprints at the scene that the police couldn't identify, and a defense attorney could use that for reasonable doubt. But the investigator sent what they had to the state attorney who said more. He wanted more. A witness who saw Rebecca move the Jeep, walk back to the house afterwards, do anything. Her fingerprints or DNA on the gun or the bullets. Even better, a confession. But they had none of that. So Rebecca was not arrested. The years passed and Rebecca remained living in the house. The problem was she couldn't really afford it. The life insurance policy was not going to pay out to the suspect in a murder of the policyholder, so she didn't have that windfall the police believed she killed for. The house eventually went into foreclosure. Preparing to have to leave the house in June 2013 Rebecca held a yard sale where she sold a lot of her nice things. Then a few days after the sale, the house caught on fire. It was five years after the murder. Rebecca and an elderly veteran who she had taken in managed to get out safely, but the house was a complete loss, particularly after what was left of it caught on fire again two days later. The fire was a suspected arson. But Rebecca said she had nothing to do with it. She had nothing to gain. She did not have the house insured. Because of where they were in the foreclosure process, the insurance on the house was the bank's insurance. She ended up with nothing and had to find a new place to live sooner than she planned. But a suspicious fire at the scene of a murder, albeit five years down the road, did catch the eye of a cold case investigator and Larry's murder was reopened for reinvestigation. The cold case review found most of the same evidence the initial investigation had. However, in looking at Rebecca's life after Larry's death, they saw that she had taken out a restraining order in 2012 against a boyfriend named Alfred Nolan. When the police made contact with Alfred, he did say there was domestic violence in the relationship and that Rebecca, at least in one instance, was the one who was violent towards him. He said the two of them were in a fight over money and she grabbed a knife and put it to his throat. He never reported that to the police. But the police continued on this thread and found someone who said that Alfred told him about the knife incident when it happened, but he added something Alfred did not say, that Rebecca said she could kill him like she killed Larry. The police took this statement back to Alfred, and he confirmed that, yes, she had said that thing about killing Larry, but he didn't mention it before because he didn't want to be a snitch. Now, there was an issue with Alfred Alfred's credibility. He had a long rap sheet. He was looking currently at years in prison when he was interviewed by the police. After he came forward with this information, he was suddenly facing less time in prison. Any defense attorney would be able to poke holes in his story and accuse him of testifying falsely to get a deal. But the police felt that this was pretty strong information that could be defended in front of the jury because Alfred didn't come forward with the story out of thin air years later. At least two other people confirmed that he told them about this incident when it happened long before the police reached out to him. And Alfred only told the whole story, including the part about having killed Larry after someone else brought it up. The other thing the reinvestigation brought in was a big reason of why I wanted to cover this case because I think it's really, really shaky evidence and I'm wondering your thoughts on it. This has to do with a linguistic analysis of guilt or innocence using the 911 call. The thinking behind it was described by the cold case detective like this. Innocent callers try to convey information, the who, what, where, when, why stuff. Guilty callers try to convince the dispatcher of the information that would then become the foundation of their cover story. Based on what has been said in interviews, I did try to find the research on this, and what I think they're referencing is a 2009 research article called Analyzing 911 Homicide Calls for Indicators of Guilt or Innocence in Exploratory Analysis. The researcher analyzed 100 911 calls made by innocent and guilty people and found around 18 to 20 variables that can be sort of tallied up to determine the likelihood the caller is guilty of the crime. The article was going to cost me $30 or $40 to buy to find out exactly what these things were. I'm a little bit cheap, in case you didn't know that about me. So I decided to just use other articles that talked about the research and were, you know, free. It seems like the basis of this research is that guilty people are focused on getting away with the crime. So the things they choose to convey to the 911 dispatcher are more about the cover-up than getting help. So let's take Rebecca's call she told the 911 operator that she was in the garage working out and then came in and found Larry. She mentioned she was out in the gym multiple times. This information was not relevant to getting Larry help. What it did was it served to distance Rebecca from the crime scene. She talked about how much she loved Larry, how much he loved her, how happy they were, how she couldn't live without him, all things to set up that she had no motive. If Rebecca was primarily concerned with Larry's well-being, according to this analysis, she would be more focused on him and less on herself. For me, I see where they're coming from. It makes sense, but it also seems so subjective. Now, let's say Rebecca is innocent. She just experienced the trauma of finding... Larry in a pool of blood. How do we know she's not just a nervous rambler? On 911 calls, the dispatcher is asking questions, but they're also working in the background. They're dispatching for help. They are filling in information by typing. There is a lot of lull in 911 calls where the dispatcher is not speaking. They're not asking questions. They're processing information. How do we know that Rebecca isn't one of those people who tries to fill that space? We've all been at a party where we hate small talk and we're standing with someone else who hates small talk, and one of you, I'm not saying it was me, but it was probably me, starts filling the space with way more information than anyone asked for. Now take that and multiply it by the trauma and anxiety of this particular situation and then judge someone's guilt by it. I'm not saying I think Rebecca is innocent or that she's guilty. I'm just saying I don't think this analysis really points as strongly in either direction as the police did and still do. But that's my opinion and you can let me know what you think about linguistic analysis, whether on social media or email. I think it was Alfred's testimony, though, that really pushed the case forward and got Rebecca indicted for the murder of Larry Fenton in March 2014, six years after he was killed. At this point, Rebecca was 46 years old. The state's theory of how the crime went down was that Rebecca confronted Larry with the gun, he tried to get away through the front door, and she followed him and shot him. She then ransacked the house to stage a robbery. She then cleaned her hands to get the gunshot residue off and hid the gun and the Jeep keys in her car, assuming the police wouldn't search it, or at least not before she had a chance to dispose of the evidence. She then called 911. Based on the neighbor's statement about the Jeep being gone before the shooting, she likely dumped it a block away beforehand while Larry was napping on the couch. The motive presented to the jury was the money Rebecca wanted out of the marriage but wanted to keep the money. The state never found anyone in Larry's life to come testify about marital issues. The unhappy marriage narrative was built largely on speculation. They speculated that Rebecca's past sex work made the domestic life with Larry just too boring for her and she wanted to be free to pursue something more exciting, possibly with her friend David, who she had that crush on. Of the 39 witnesses the state called, Alfred Nolan was probably the star witness, and he testified about the knife incident. They also had Rebecca's birth mother testify about the crush Rebecca had on David, something she hadn't denied. The defense countered that Rebecca had more financial wealth with Larry alive than she ever had with his death. She wasn't cheating on him. There was no reason for her to believe that she was going to write off in the sunset with David, and her life largely spiraled after Larry's death. She had unstable relationships and financial problems. This motive had not borne out in reality. The defense also pointed to the lack of evidence. There were no forensics linking Rebecca to the crime. No witnesses who saw her leave with the Jeep or come back home without it. No one saw her put those items into her car. The neighbors who looked over to the house when they heard the gunshots said they didn't see Rebecca come out of the house until she was hysterical and calling 911. Just as there were no witnesses to an intruder, there were also no witnesses to Rebecca doing any of this. And the defense brought up the footprints that had not been identified and said that pointed towards someone else being there, and that should be enough for reasonable doubt. 49-year-old Rebecca did not testify in her own defense. In November 2015, after two hours of deliberation, the jury found her guilty of first-degree murder She was then sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. People are very torn on this case. Anytime it's come up on a show like Crime Watch Daily, Killer Women, or Snapped, whatever show covers it in 45 minutes or less, my podcast even, the comments sections are full of people arguing about it. A big question that comes up is, if not Rebecca, then who? In interviews with neighbors, they identified Larry as a pharmaceutical rep. So was it someone who thought there would be samples of drugs in the house that they could use or sell? But even then, it's still a brazen robbery to try to commit in broad daylight when there was reason to believe both Larry and Rebecca were home. And that leaves the other option. The person who went to the house was there to kill Larry and possibly even Rebecca if they found her there. But then why didn't they bring their own weapon, go into the living room and shoot Larry while he was napping? Why go all the way up the stairs, find the gun in the bedroom, and then use that? And why take the Jeep and then take the risk to return to plant evidence in Rebecca's car? This is one of those cases where... Pretty much every theory has massive holes. And that's a large part of why it took so many years for the case to go to trial and why people are still debating it even after the verdict. With not much direct evidence against Rebecca, but a huge question mark as to how or why someone else would have done this, I think this is one of those cases that will continue to be debated over and over again. And in the meantime, Rebecca is spending the rest of her life at the Florida Women's Reception Center. So far, her appeals have been denied. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for.